This is recording. All right, hopefully uh, this audio comes out okay. All right, so I'm recycling my slides from the 12-week program or the 12-week class that I did already. So I just did a review. This is a slide you could use. I'll send you this bra slides. I'm not going to worry about you stealing them and publishing them. Um, but this is the slide I used for like the salvation history thing, right? God created the world, everything was good. Then something happened, things became distorted. Then something else happened, Jesus enters into the distorted world to bring clarity so that we can grow in virtue so that at the end of time, all things are renewed and we can enter into heaven or the wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay, the Trinity stuff that I just did on the board, it's all right here, right? This is that relationship and trust himself completely, fruitfulness, being for, being from, being with. Okay, it's all right there. All right, so when we talk about original solitude, okay, original solitude means that this relationship that existed from all time then becomes visible in the world. So when God creates us in his image, we're created in the image of his son. Okay, St. Paul uses that idea when he says that Christ is the new Adam. Okay, which also means that in God's divine mind, which sees all of history at the same time, Adam was a precursor to Christ, Jesus, the incarnation. All right, to the new Adam. So that means that the relational dynamic between the Father and the Son also exists between God and man. Right, God wants the good for him. He says, don't eat that fruit or else you'll die. He doesn't want him to die, right? That's the point. I want the good for you. I want you to live in relationship with me. Okay, it's not about I'm going to put you to the test. I know that we say that all the time, and in some places in Scripture it says that God put him to the test. But when sometimes it gets interpreted by us as like God is this sort of benevolent manipulator, Who's like, oh, you think you love me? Here, I'm going to send you all these obstacles. You know, we're always like tested in our love because love has to be a choice, right? It is like a choice to respond to the lover, right? We choose to respond to the lover. And so in the beginning, God wants the good for him. Don't eat that fruit or you'll die. And Adam believes God and he trusts God and he entrusts himself to God and everything's good. Right? And everything's good. And he finds his identity and relationship with God. He knows that he is a son. But the scripture says it's not good that the man be alone. So, what's not good about this state of original solitude? What's not good is he cannot yet love in the fullness of the image of God in the visible world. He can only love as a son, but not yet as a husband or a father. So, God says, It's not good that the man be alone. I'll make him a suitable partner. And this is where... We can question God's <laughs> omnipotence. <laughs> or the fact that he's all-knowing. Because he says, I'm going to make you a suitable partner, but he doesn't make a suitable partner right away. And I'm just going to read through that. Right, just because I like to reflect on this. <laughs> so, 
The Lord God said, It is not good that the man be alone. I will make him a suitable partner. I will make a helper suited to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each living creature was then its name. The man gave name to all the tame animals, all the birds of the air, and all the wild animals, but none proved to be the helper suited to the man. So if we think about that in context, right, and we were talking about the context of Adam discovering his identity in the garden, and he's realizing, I'm not like the rock, I'm not like the tree, I'm like God. So he has this longing for someone like himself so that he can confirm his own identity. Right? Our identity gets confirmed when we find somebody that's like us. We naturally gravitate towards people that are like us. It helps us to know who we are and we're comfortable with that. Like when I was a kid, I remember my sister, I'm like 10 years older than my sister Katie. And uh, she was playing with her toys, and she would start staring at me. And she goes, I'm like you. And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, you have blue eyes, and I have blue eyes. I'm like you. Because nobody else in the family had blue eyes. And she was like looking for someone that's like her. Right? That's how we find our identity when we're growing up. Like We start to identify. I'm like this person. I'm not like this person. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't know my siblings, like all those siblings, like from my dad's first marriage, my mom's first marriage, things like that. I finally met them all by the time I was 21 years old. I established a relationship of some kind with each of them. And with each of them, there was this sort of discovery of myself. Because we would look alike, or there'd be certain characteristics that we had in common. My sister Donna has the face of my father. Like, it freaked me out. I couldn't even talk to her, like, the whole first week I spent with her because it was like my dad with... My dad's a woman. Um, <laughs> so it was difficult, like, because I was in awe most of the time. I was just like, wow, there's this person in the world who has the face of my dad, and there's something familiar there. Right? There's something familiar there. I remember meeting my cousin, and I didn't grow up... We didn't grow up together, and she would just watch my body language or my mannerisms or things that I did, and it would catch her eye because they were similar to things that her dad did. Right? When we're around our families, that's how like a healthy family, people learn like their identity within the context of a healthy family because they see that there, and something gets confirmed in them. So Adam in the garden, he has this longing for someone else that can help him to confirm his identity because all he really knows right now is he's not this, 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 or this. And so then God says, I'll make him a suitable partner. And then he sees this creature that can move like he moves. So, so far, nothing else could move like he moves. Now he sees a creature that can move like he moves. And he's like, maybe this creature will be like me. And this creature moves towards him. And he's like, this creature has beautiful eyes. And this creature moves forward. And he's like, this creature's really soft. And then the creature starts licking his face. <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's just a dog. <laughs> and so he has this anticipation and then this kind of letdown. And then the next creature comes along. And he's like, maybe this is the creature. But it has a really weird neck. And like, it's a giraffe. <laughs> And he goes on and on and on, naming all the animals. God sent him all the animals to see what he would call them. 
And all this time there's this anticipation and disappointment. Until finally he falls asleep. God casts a deep sleep on him. And while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. The Lord God then built the rib he had taken from the man into a woman. And he brought her to the man. So then he sees this creature moving towards him, and her body is like his body, but not like his body. She walks upright like he walks upright. And when he looks into her eyes, he can tell that she knows the same God that he knows. And he says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of her man this one has been taken. At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And they have the at-last moment, right? That's what I call the at-last moment. Like I always say, couples, you should all like have an at-last moment. And it might be different. Like the wife's at-last moment might not be the same as the husband's at-last moment. <laughs> but you have an at-last moment where you realize this is the person that confirms my identity. Like this is the person that I want to be with for the rest of my life. And all of that process, it's like dating and marriage. It's just like dating and marriage. A girl sees guy. He's so athletic. He's so muscular. He's great. He's beautiful. And then they go to coffee, and she's like, just a dog. <laughs> <laughs> like this anticipation, and then let down. Because he's mean to his mom or something. And so like dating is like that. Like you differentiate, you figure out, and then you find like this is the one. And finally, you say, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And that's the beginning of the rest of your life. And it's also the beginning of your children's lives if you're married. Right? And I always tell couples, like, you should tell your kids your at-last moment story. And when I talk to kids, I say, go home and ask your parents their at-last moment story. And I'm sure the parents are like, what the heck? I'm like, Google Father Kilcally. <laughs> um, because that's the beginning of their life. Right? That's the beginning of their life. And their at-last moment story, it might be like, I missed the bus, and I was waiting for the next bus, and then this woman came and sat down on the bench and offered me a piece of gum. I don't know. And this happenstance meeting that turned into a romance, that turned into a marriage, that turned into a family. And it all started there. And somewhere in our lives, in our own family histories, we have some happenstance meeting that happened between two people. And when we reflect on that, we can say, Lord, I praise you for the wonder of my being. I praise you for the wonder of my being. Because God brought these two people together. And because he brought these two people together, I exist. And we should tell that to our young people. Because we forget that our identity comes from the love between two people. Right? This is a distortion in society because of the change in marriage law. Right? Well, you become married in order to have children. That's why people get married. Not everybody can have children. Some people suffer from infertility and other various impediments. But the purpose of marriage is to have children, to be spiritually fruitful. And we'll talk in the section on marriage on spiritual fruitfulness. Right? So when he has the at-last moment, now... It's possible for the man to love the woman with the same love he's received from the Lord. So he receives the father's love. The father wants the good for me. And now I see this woman and I want the good for her. The same way that God wanted the good for me. 
And he also entrusts himself to her. Right? When we talk about human relationships, it's not going to be exactly like the Trinity. Because the Trinity is about absolutes. Human relationships are not absolute. When we use the family as an analogy for the Trinity, the difference is always infinitely greater than the similarity. Ladder in Council 4. Right? When she sees him, she sees him and recognizes that she can entrust herself to him and she wants the good for him. She loves him with the same love that she's received from the Lord. And when that love is expressed in its fullness, also through the language of the body, a third person comes forth. And so the family is an image of God's love in the Trinity. And now, with the coming forth of that child, Adam can love as a son of the father, as the husband of his wife, and as the father of his child. Eve can love as a daughter of the father, as the wife of her husband, as the mother of that child. And those three kinds of love are all experienced in their fullness. And we live out the fullness of the image of God. Right? But it's lived out according to the anthropological order. Okay? According to the anthropological order. Because if they are not a son and daughter, they cannot become a husband and wife. And so even in the sacrament, the way we teach the sacrament of marriage, marriage is a sacrament when two people are baptized. So inherent in the church's understanding of marriage as a sacrament is the reality that they have to be a son and a daughter respectively in order to be a husband and a wife in the image of God, in the image of Christ's love for his church. And so if we want like healthy sacramental marriages, what do we have to work on? We have to work on the conversion of those two people to our Lord. Because as they grow in the depth of their identity as sons and daughters, they'll be able to live more fully their identity as husbands and wives. So John Paul II says, the meaning of original solitude enters and becomes part of the meaning of original unity. Okay? So this experience between the man and the woman is the experience of original unity. At last... This one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Okay, it's the experience of original unity. And the original solitude enters and becomes part of the meaning of original unity. The key point of which seems to be precisely the words of Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife and the two will become one flesh. Right, so when we talk about original unity, this relationship between men and women... It's always rooted in original solitude. Okay? It's never separate from their identity as sons and daughters of God. Right? And this is the point that became very obvious as I was rereading the Wednesday audiences. They often get left out of popularized versions of theology of the body. Popular versions of theology of the body constantly talk about sex and marriage and they kind of skip over the original solitude part. 
There was a talk I gave at the International Theology of the Body Congress last year in Philadelphia, and it was a panel discussion talking about pornography. And, um, and so the presenter, the first presenter, he talked all about like God's plan creating us male and female, but he skipped over the part about like we're all created for union with God first. And then my talk was all about how this is really an issue of the fact that we're created for a relationship with God. Because like that sin of inchastity particularly is an, about substituting something for God. More so than it is a distortion of the relationships between men and women. The distortion happens as an effect, but the thing that drives people or that leads to that acting out is something that's missing in their relationship with God. An inability to be alone with God. So in Genesis chapter 1, there is no mention of this idea of original solitude. In Genesis chapter 2, John Paul II says, it allows us to think first about man inasmuch as through the body he belongs to the visible world while going beyond it. It then lets us think about the same man but through the duality of sex, okay, as male and female. So in Genesis chapter 1, we just have God created the male and female. Genesis chapter 2 allows us to reflect on that relationship between God and man first, and then to think about the same man through the duality of sex in the context of the relationship between men and women. So John Paul II says we have to go back to the beginning. Jesus points us back to the beginning. But in going back to the beginning, he's not talking about simply the fact that we were created male and female and this is how marriage is, but we're going back farther to the fact that we're created first for a relationship with God. That's where we find our identity. And then that leads into the relationships between men and women. Okay, and then he has this line that bodiliness and sexuality are not simply identical. Okay, bodiliness is what reveals the fact that we're created for communion, we're created for relationship, even reveals the fact that we're created for relationship with God. When we talk about sexuality, specifically gender, then we're more focused on the differences between men and women and how they relate to each other. He says the fact that, the, that man is a body belongs more deeply to the structure of the personal subject than the fact that in his somatic constitution he is also male or female. Okay, the fact that we're a body belongs more deeply to the structure of the personal subject. It belongs more deeply to the, like, who we are as a person that we're different from the animals, that we're different from creation, that we're created for union with God. That's the more deep, it's the deeper reality than the fact that in our bodiliness we're male and female. So again, all of the social arguments that we talked about at the beginning, all this like discussion of gender, gender identity, homosexuality, all of it, 
the argument that we tend to go towards is like to really isolate the difference between the male brain, the female brain, the difference between the man's body, the woman's body, the difference between men and women. Men like to like play sports and women like to have talks, things like that. Those differences don't always work anymore. Like I kind of hate them because on Engaged Encounter, we always do this exercise. If you connect by doing a task like working on cars, stand up. If you connect by talking, sit down. And the idea is that when you ask all these questions, the men will all stand up and the women will all be sitting down and vice versa. But what happens is like a lot of times couples stand and sit together because they both kind of like the same things. Those kind of gender categories, they're generalized, but they're more and more in the modern world. They're not as black and white as they used to be. And so um, it can actually cause a lot of shame to say men are this way, women are this way. Because inevitably, and I used, I, do, I used to do this in class, and there'd always be that girl who would say to me, like, you know, well, I don't really multitask, and I don't really, you know, like she would just have all of these counter arguments to what I said femininity was. You know, because it doesn't always work. Um, you know, one of the areas, and this has come up, I think I talked about this on Catholic Answers with regard to pornography, was like we say, like, women don't look at visual pornography, they like to read stories. Well, it's not quite so true anymore. And so a girl who might be struggling with that, she's like, well, I'm more like a guy than a girl, and you're all like compounding shame about things. You know, we have to remember every person is unique, unrepeatable, etc. So, so using those categories, in general, we can say certain things, but the better distinctions are the distinctions we can make between motherhood and fatherhood than between femininity and masculinity. Because there are very concrete differences between motherhood and fatherhood that we can point to on a biological level, on a psychological level, within the structure of a family. So when we talk about God, some people will say, like, God has feminine traits, God has masculine traits. But it would be more theologically, it would make better theological distinctions to talk about maternity and paternity. Maternal love and paternal love. Okay, and we'll get to unpacking that as we go. So this bullet point I just put in here because um, John Paul II reflects on like the idea of myth in scripture, right? He says, following contemporary philosophy of religion and of language, one can say that we are dealing with a mythical language, that the creation stories, the genre of the creation stories is myth, okay? In this case, the term myth refers, does not refer to a fictitious, fabulous content, but simply to an archaic way of expressing a deeper content. Okay, so we use myth in order to express something deeper, and it's the best language that we have to express the reality. So it's not important, and I know people always get upset about this, but like it's not important if the narrative went exactly like Genesis 2 says. What's important is what Genesis 2 communicates to us about being man and woman. Okay, we've already talked about this. So the Lord, okay, so this is just that, that line in scripture. The Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man who fell asleep. Then he took one of his ribs, closed up the place 
again with the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he formed a woman. So there's an analogy of sleep. So when it says that he cast a deep sleep on the man, there's the analogy of sleep, which is sort of the analogy of a return to non-being, like a return to that time just before God created everything. As if to show that he's doing something new and profound. A return to the moment before creation to reemerge from that moment in his double unity as male and female. Because there's something more complete about his double unity as male and female. Reflecting on the content of his dream, John Paul II says he dreamed of a second eye. Right? He dreamed of somebody like himself, which is also personal and equally related to the situation of original solitude. Right? Somebody who knows the same God that he knows. That is, to that whole process of establishing human identity in relation to all living beings, inasmuch as it is a process of man's differentiation from such surroundings. So, again, that's like a long, lot of complicated language. What he, he uses a lot of personalism there because in personalist philosophy, there's a lot of reflection on the I-thou relation and how we come to know ourselves in relationship to another. So we come to know ourselves by differentiating from what's not like me and identifying with what's like me. Right? If we go back to St. Thomas... St. Thomas talks about the cogitative power. The cogitative power is the part of our intellect that says this thing and this thing go together. This thing, it doesn't go with this thing. So the cogitative power like, looks at the world and says, I'm not a desk. It's very elementary, but it says, I'm not a desk. I'm this. Sees another person, I'm like this person. Okay, what's necessary in developing our identity and relationships is confrontation because confrontation is our ability to say I'm not like this person. People who struggle with confrontation oftentimes struggle with knowing themselves and they struggle with their own identity because there's an inability to say no to something or to engage with somebody that thinks differently than we do. You know, I think part of the wisdom of what Pope Francis is doing is he's just letting these cardinals beat each other up, like, constantly. Because in beating each other up, whether you're, like, Cardinal Casper or Cardinal Burke, in beating each other up, they might find a better theological synthesis. If we just only talk to people who think like we think, we're not going to stretch ourselves and grow. Okay, because there is a better theological synthesis than what is going on in these arguments and what is reported by news services. You know, like this, I'd say the same thing as in American culture because of cable television. A lot of people have reflected on this. When there was only three channels, the news had to be like more precise and neutral. But with cable television, then the news can be the news of the people who think like I think. And you just tune into the people who think like I think. And that really stunts our growth intellectually. And it can stunt our growth, you know, in general. And then Fox News can have me convinced that Romney's going to win the presidential race. 
and then like he loses by land. I'm like, what? Fox News let me down. Because you know, they think like I think. Sometimes. Um, so this idea of differentiation, right? It's the personalist um, category is confrontation. Okay, saying I'm not like this thing. All right, homogeneity refers first to the body, the somatic structure, and it is also confirmed by the man's first words to the woman just created. This time she is flesh from my flesh and bone from my bones. So John Paul II reflects on the homogeneity of the human person, that we're the same. Okay? We're the same. We're the same insofar as we have a body-soul composite and that we know the same God. So when he says, this is flesh and my flesh and bone from my bones, right, it means more than our physical differences, right? Because if it was just based on our physical differences, then he would have said, this person's not like me. But instead, like he sees that she is a person created in the image of God, that she's in relationship with God, and like she's like me. which is a really interesting place to reflect on, especially with regard to gender, gender identity, how we understand homosexual attraction, things like that. Because just at the level of, on a purely philosophical level, same-sex attraction is an attraction to sameness that doesn't require me to transcend myself and try to figure myself out. Like, I know what it's like, like, I know what a man is like. You know, gender difference, it always makes us have to transcend ourselves and look at ourselves. Because we're different. And, like, women are mysteries to men. In a good way. Because if you weren't a mystery, I'd be bored with you. You know, and men are mysteries to the women. And that mystery draws us into relationship. But it forces me to have to look at myself and figure myself out. Right, so I'm indebted to like um, the many religious sisters that I'm close with and women that I work with because they force me to have to confront myself. You know, when they say, like, Father, you should smile more. <laughs> don't walk around with that face on because people think you don't like them. Um, and I'm like, no, of course I like them. You don't look like you like them. So anyway, that was too personal. All right. <laughs> So he says, flesh of my flesh, despite sexual difference. Joy is expressed in finding a being similar to himself. And their unity denotes, above all, the identity of human nature. Duality, on the other hand, shows what, on the basis of this identity, constitutes the masculinity and femininity of created man. Right? So when we look at what constitutes masculinity and femininity, we look at that duality or the relationship with each other, but the unity and the identity of human nature like, is in the fact that they're both created in God's image and likeness. This all shows that man has been created as a particular value before God, but also as a particular value for man himself. First, because he is man. Second, because the woman is for the man and vice versa, the man for the woman. Okay, and so now he, like, he's going to use all this relational language. So we have this particular value before God in and of ourselves 
But then we see that there's a particular value in being a man for the woman and a particular value in being the woman for the man. And as we go forward, we're really reflecting on Gaudiumus Bez 22. And so I'm going to throw this out here, and this is what we'll pick up tomorrow because I'm going to see what's in the question box. But Gaudiumus Bez 22 says, Man is the only creature that God willed for his own sake. Okay, man is the only creature that God willed for his own sake. But then goes on to say that man only comes to know himself through the sincere gift of himself. So you have there man created for his own sake, original solitude. We come to know ourselves through making the sincere gift of ourself, original unity. And that line from Gaudium Spes 22 that says, man is the only creature that God willed for his own sake, I did not understand that line all through the seminary, all through my priesthood, even when I was in grad school, like it's just kind of dawned on me recently what that means. You know, that it means we have value in and of ourselves. God created us to be in relationship with him. Okay, my value is not based on my usefulness. It's not based, based on what I do. It's not even based on whether or not I do everything that God wants me to do in my life. It's based on just the fact that I am, that God created me to be in relationship with Him. That I am a beloved son or I am a beloved daughter. God made us for Him. And so many of us have this distortion that I only have value if I do X, Y, and Z. Love is a reward if I'm good. It's withheld if I'm bad. When I was a kid, my mom came down and yelled at me for my sister was upstairs picking up my dirty laundry off the floor of the bathroom. She just comes down and she goes, do you know what your sister's doing? No. She's picking up all your dirty clothes off the bathroom floor. Do you know why? I asked her why. Do you know what she said? No. She said, maybe if I pick up his clothes off the floor, then he'll love me. She was like six. How did she learn that? Through the distortions in her own family life and situation. But a lot of us have those distortions. Anybody who has any people-pleasing streaks in their life has those distortions. Anybody who's worried about being honest with somebody has those distortions. Anybody who ever says, I can't really tell you how, I'm, how tell this person how I'm feeling because they might, might hurt their feelings has those distortions. And it stems from not recognizing that we were created for our own sake, that we have value in and of ourselves and our value is not something that's dependent on what we do. What we do is like the overflow of our value. Like there's an order of love, and there's an order of love and virtue. You know, like love is the presence of the beloved and the lover. So Jesus made an impression on my life, which created a desire in my heart. Virtue is the action that I do in response to that desire, in accordance with that desire. 
So to have virtue, I first have to have Jesus or this encounter of love. Oftentimes, we reverse order. And we say, if you become virtuous, then you'll have the disposition for Jesus to love you. And there can be some of that. Like We can have a virtuous life that makes us more open and ready to hear the word of God, but theologically, it's not theological virtue. It's not supernatural virtue. And we're about supernatural virtue, not just human virtue. Supernatural virtue has to start with an encounter of God's love, and then it's action, it's a response to that love. Because I know lots of virtuous people who do all the right things and feel dead inside. Because no matter what they do, they can't connect with our Lord. And they're never good enough. Because we can be perfectionists. Okay. So I'm going to go through a couple of these questions. So this one says, The Father wills the good for the Son. The Son entrusts himself to the Father. These are strong and understandable, applicable to experience. Whereas, the Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. It is true, it does not seem as comprehensible in experience. So there's no question mark, so I'm going on. Just kidding. All right. <clears throat> so, it is harder to understand that. Because... Like in our experience, love is the space between two people, right? It's the space that exists between two people. So there can be a bond of love between two people. And we kind of recognize it when it's there. But we can't always put words on what it means. And for some of us, it's hard to imagine that it even exists because of the distortions in our own lives. So, like, for example, I am horrible at keeping in touch with people. I'm horrible at it. Because of the way I grew up, and I'm not blaming my family, I'm just saying, like, this is my experience. When I grew up, when I grew up, my grandparents moved away when I was about six years old, and I never saw them until I was 20, and I went to find them. When I went to find them, it was like they just acted like we'd never been separated for the last 15 years so i came to the conclusion that geographical distance just like you just kind of like let things go and you pick up when you're back in geographical proximity what's really hard for me to comprehend and i know that this is a distortion i have and i constantly have to work on it it's hard for me to comprehend that somebody like my sister overseas can hold in in her mind my presence or my existence. It's hard for me to comprehend that somebody out there is thinking about me and that that bond of love actually exists between us. But that's what, like, that's what that experience would be. It would be like the bond of love that exists between, like I know this person is thinking about me and I'm thinking about them. And I know this person's always there for me. And no matter what I do, they'll always be accessible to me. 
you know, like in a loving relationship, like in human relationships between a man and a woman, like there is that bond of love or that space between them in a really healthy relationship so that the other person is always on their mind, says Willie Nelson, I think, right? <laughs> but that's what we sing about, right? That's the love we sing about. And like that's the space in between two people. Okay, and so when, now for us too, we don't always think about the fact that the Holy Spirit's rule theologically is to make Christ present. Right, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes Christ present. What happens in the Eucharistic prayer? We call down the Holy Spirit in order to make Christ present on the altar. That's the Holy Spirit's job, to make Christ present. Jesus says, I will send you the paraclete. Which helps to explain, I will be with you until the end of the age. So the Holy Spirit's job is to make Christ present. So the, as the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son, it's also the Holy Spirit's rule to make Christ present to humanity. And we don't always think about the Holy Spirit. And sometimes, not to offend any charismatic people, but sometimes charismatic people talk about the Holy Spirit as if it's like this secret knowledge. And like, I found the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people can have the Holy Spirit so much that they forget it's about Jesus and Jesus becoming present. You know, and I have a friend who's charismatic and they, she's in Assemblies of God or something like that is their denomination. When I was in chaplain school, she was like, we have the Holy Spirit. And we talk about it like, you know, Catholics have the Eucharist. We have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> but we can do that because we think about God in a compartmentalized way and we get too much into the mode of the Father creates, Jesus redeems, Holy Spirit sanctifies. So the Holy Spirit's going to come like, you know, you haven't really had him until you're confirmed and then you're going to get all these gifts. And I know that's not what we teach, but it can be the way we receive it. The Holy Spirit is the bond of love that makes Christ present. And I didn't realize that this was such a big deal until I was working with someone. And um, like most of you know that I'm like anti-pornography apostolate and kind of known around the country for that. But when I was working with somebody, uh, this is somebody who makes a holy hour every day and then they go home and they get like lost on the internet. And, and I came to realize that this person believes Jesus is in the tabernacle but he doesn't believe Jesus is in his bedroom. And so he spends his life going to the tabernacle as if it's a filling station, like a gas station. Like, I need to go to the tabernacle because that's where Jesus is. I'm going to fill up on Jesus, and I'm going to go out in the world. And as I go out in the world, I start running out of Jesus. And if I run out of Jesus, then I'm really in trouble, and I'm going to fall into sin. Right? It's not theologically consistent or true but it is how a lot of people operate and so he believed that jesus is present in the tabernacle but he's not present in his bedroom and so we start like praying to the holy spirit praying spiritual communions when you go back to your bedroom you just say jesus you're welcome into this space it is the holy spirit that makes christ present there and and that's one of like the simple spiritual practices it's like the little way of saint therese Jesus, you're welcome into my room with me. Jesus, you're welcome to fold laundry with me. Jesus, you're welcome to change diapers with me. Jesus, you're welcome to be in this conversation with a really annoying person that usually gets under my skin with me. Jesus, you're welcome into my space. 
Jesus, you're welcome into my life. And Jesus, you're welcome into my life, like, is amazing. <clears throat> it's amazingly simple. But it is, like, concrete in the spiritual tradition of practicing the presence of God. And, and so, like, this is what I discovered about myself was that I had a tendency to want to shut everything out at the end of the day, and I wasn't giving the last two hours of my day to Jesus. I was just going back. It was 10 o'clock at night. I'm really tired. I'm going to go in my room. I'm going to shut the door, and I'm going to pretend like everybody thinks I'm not in my room. So, like, if people knock on the door, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to pretend like I'm not in my room. My room's going to be a mess. I'm not going to clean it. I'm just going to shut my door and pretend like everybody thinks that my room is clean. Sounds ridiculous, but some of you might know what I'm talking about. Um, and that's how I lived. And then I just had this realization that I was keeping that part of my life completely for myself, and our Lord wanted it. And so I started going back to my room and saying, Jesus, you're welcome into my room. We're just going to watch Netflix. Or we're just going to watch TV. Because that's what I was doing. And what did that do? It like actually brought me a lot of joy. Because our Lord wants our whole life, but he also wants our recreation. And if, we're, if that's what we're going to do, Jesus knows we're doing it anyways, we might as well invite him. And if we invite him, we might figure out, like, hey, he doesn't really want me to watch TV right now. Like, there's something more productive I could be doing. And that's what happened is slowly, like, it started to loosen up my, like, last two hours of the day TV habit as I continually invited our Lord into that activity with me. And it reminded me that I'm not alone. And so that's like just simple practicing the presence of God. It is an exercise of like calling on the Holy Spirit to make Christ present in that space. And we need to make Christ present in that space. All right. Oh my gosh, this is so long. Okay. This relates to what you said about the family being a reflection of the Trinity. I've said this to teenagers, and I would like your opinion to know if I am on the right track. Some of you may come from broken homes and haven't really experienced the love of the family. Don't lose hope. You may not be able to fix things at home now, but each of you has the real hope of finding the spouse God has chosen for you. And then you will have the family life you so desired right now. So live with that hope. Your future can be brighter than your past. Am I on the right track here? Okay, so I'm just going to respond the way that I would respond, which is that um, when I talked about having congruency across salvation history and congruency across our lives, the way that I would respond is more trying to like have empathy for whatever situation that that child might have at home now. And also talking about the fact that our Lord wants to supply for you now, even now, what's missing in your family life at home. That if you feel alone, abandoned, rejected, our Lord wants to answer your loneliness, abandonment, rejection. Our Lord wants to be the answer to however it is that sin has entered into your life. Because it is the consequence of sin. Like a broken home is the consequence of sin. And it's a sin that has had an impact on our lives. You know, and sometimes we forget 
that the cross, like this moment in history, was a moment in which Jesus died for all of the sin of the world. Because we can become too focused on the fact that Jesus died for my sin on the cross. So the difference is sort of like this. If Jesus died for my sin on the cross, that means every time that I've ever done anything bad, I hurt Jesus. And he must not be very happy with me because of that. If he died for the sin of the world, that means every time anybody has ever sinned against me, Jesus felt the consequence of that sin. Which means that when my mom died when I was two years old and I felt abandoned, alone, disconnected, Jesus felt abandoned, alone, disconnected because it's the consequence of sin in my life. A sin committed against me or just the consequence of sin in general being death. If somebody was betrayed on the cross, Jesus felt that betrayal. Right? Because he's united with us on the cross. So when Jesus sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Pope Benedict reflects in Jesus of Nazareth on how he came into communion with the sin of the world. And he experienced the sin of the world as if he had committed it, but he never committed sin. So he experiences the consequence of the sin of the world, which means any consequences of sin that we feel in our own lives, he experienced and has perfect empathy for. <clears throat> and so he knows the pain of not knowing who your father is. He knows the pain of not knowing your mother. He knows the pain of just waiting for your dad to come home every single day, but he never came home. And he wants to respond to that pain and to give you what you've been missing. So that you come to know your identity as a son now. <clears throat> Shifting too soon to the pray for your future wife so that you can have the family that you always wanted growing up is setting people up for a lot of hurt in the future, I think. <clears throat> because when we're not healed in our identity as a son or a daughter, that wound always enters into our relationship with our spouse. And then we have unrealistic expectations for what that marriage is going to look like. <clears throat> and I think because of the culture we live in, we want to set up these like expectations and we set up these expectations in an unhealthy way. And so sometimes we're telling our young people, if you date right, if you do everything right, then you'll have a happier marriage. And there are young people who are doing everything right and they get married to a crazy person. Or they get married and they just have normal problems. And when they have normal problems, they're like, but I did everything right. And it sets up an unrealistic expectation. Because we all need to be converted, constantly to be converted. And so moving too soon to that as kind of like the hope, like our hope is in Christ now. Our hope is in the fact that our Lord responds to our sinfulness. Our hope is in the fact that we can hear the words, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased and believe them. Even in the midst of any kind of distortion that we have in our lives and our families. <clears throat> because we want to make sure that we're always pointing to the hope that rests in our Lord. And that we're not pointing to the hope of having a better future because I've married the right person. 
because every couple is called to be continually transformed. When we say your job is to get your spouse to heaven, the main way people get their spouse to heaven is that they frustrate their spouse so much the spouse has to become holy. <laughs> I mean, that happens, right? Like, I become holy because like, I have to continually submit myself to our Lord and is count on our Lord to supply for my needs. Because if I count on other people to supply for my needs, I'm always going to be disappointed. And my spiritual director is constantly hammering me about that. Constantly. You know, I could go to spiritual direction about, you know, I'm really frustrated with my job or whatever's going on. Sometimes we have frustrating days. We're all human. And he just looks at me and he goes, our Lord's trying to teach you to be more obedient to him. Like, this is about your relationship with Christ. Like, don't let all of, all that stuff doesn't matter. It's about your relationship with Christ. And as you're converted in Christ, like, those things don't become such a big deal. It becomes more sustainable. Life becomes more sustainable. Because we know ourselves in that core identity as a son or a daughter. Okay. All right, that was like a 12-minute rant that went over time. Okay, so anyway, so we'll wrap up there. Um, thank you all for being willing to come out and... Uh, and for your reflection, I'll leave those four questions for you to reflect on tonight. And we'll meet tomorrow for Mass. should be at 8. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. I would take your stuff with you because who knows who's in here tonight. I think the unbound people are in here tonight. <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you.